Welcome to the Reach Young Adult Ministry Podcast with your teacher, Pastor Taylor Gabbard. There is a stirring, there is a hunger. I want to start tonight with uh, just a question, simple question. Why is it, why do you think that we spend so much time in our lives trying to fix our own problems? Why is it that it seems like everything that's happening, we're constantly reaching out for the solution or trying to fix the problem or control the outcome? The truth is, it's actually easier to try to control it yourself. It's actually easier to try to handle the outcome than it is to let go and have faith that God's going to handle something. That's actually the harder option. What if God doesn't fix it? Or what if God doesn't fix it the way I want it fixed? These are the reasons that we hold on to stuff. This is the reason that we want to fix it our way. Sometimes it's actually easier not to fix it at all. Because if I don't try to fix it, then I just get to be a victim. I get to live and kind of bathe in everyone else's pity and sympathy and, and look at the, the crisis going on in my life. And so ultimately, it's, it's easier to try to fix it yourself and control the outcome. And it's easier to not fix it at all. The hardest option that we have is actually the one where we let go and let God, if you will. How do we live a life of faith? How do we actually walk in faith and let God handle the hard situations in our life? Last week, we saw Elisha's heart. We saw that Elisha, his heart was being prepared to serve God. He was going through a period, we called it heart work. Here's the question. If you want to remember last week, just remember this. Do you want God to use you in your life? Do you actually want God to use you, to to make your life meaningful and fulfilling? Because if you want that, there's a process of preparation that goes into that. You don't just wake up one morning and you're ready for the biggest test of your life. You go through a process where God prepares your heart. This week, we're going to see Elisha and several other people actually trust in God's provision. We're going to see them walk according to this radical faith, this irrational walk. Now, before we get into 2 Kings, 2 Kings chapter 4 is where we're going to be tonight. Before we get into it, I want to point out one thing about what the author is actually trying to get across in this portion of Scripture. The author has a specific point, and that's going to help us understand how we have to think about this text. The author's point is, the miraculous signs show God's Spirit on Elisha to work as his Savior to those with faith. Here's the reality. Elisha, in this portion, he is a type of Christ. Old Testament types of Christ were foreshadowing who Jesus would someday be. They were designed to show us that we need Jesus. The Old Testament shows us clearly with the law that we can't live up to and to all the people that are types of Christ that don't actually fulfill what Jesus is eventually going to fulfill, that we need Jesus. That's the whole point. So Elisha, at this point in history, when this was being written, the argument being made by the author is he was the savior of God's people, those who had faith in this portion of Scripture. And we know that that is just a foreshadowing of Jesus. Look with me, if you will, chapter 4, verse 1 of 2 Kings. Now a woman of the wives of the sons of the prophets cried out to Elisha, saying, Your servant, my husband, is dead, and you know that that your servant feared the Lord. And the creditor has come to take my two children to be his slaves. So Elisha said to her, What shall I do for you? Tell me, what do you have in the house? And she said, Your servant has nothing in the house except a jar of oil. Then he said, Go, borrow containers elsewhere for yourself, empty containers from all your neighbors. Do not get too few. Then you shall come in and shut the door behind you and your sons uh, and pour into all these containers and you shall set aside what is full. So she left him and shut the door behind her, her and her sons. They began bringing the containers to her and she poured the oil. 
When the containers were full, she said to her son, bring me another container. But he said to her, there are no more containers. Then the oil stopped. So she came and told the man of God, and he said, go sell your oil and pay your debt, and you and your sons can live on the rest. Okay, the first point is the faith walk is active. Here's the thing. We have this problem. You don't believe and faith in the Bible. They're synonymous. These are not different things. But we have this problem with the word believe because we've watered believing down to just kind of this intellectual knowledge of because you've been told your whole life to believe in Santa and the tooth fairy and these other things. What do you have to do to believe in Santa? Nothing. You don't do anything to believe in Santa. You just think he exists. That is not what believing in God is. It's not, simple, it's not simply thinking that God, in fact, does exist. It's an active faith. And the first thing we see here is this woman, she's in crisis, and she turns to God. The first thing she does is she turns to God. Now, keep in mind, why are we focusing on her? Because Elisha in this story is the type of Christ. He is representing our future Savior. We need a Savior. We're not Elisha in this story. We're the widow. And the point is, in her crisis, her first instinct is to turn to God. Now, why does Elisha tell her to shut the door? The thing is, signs are never supposed to be the point in and of themselves. You can read the Bible, and you can take this sign completely out of context, and you can go, oh, God can do it, so he'll do it for me. That's not the way you're supposed to read a sign. That's not the point of something miraculous that happens in the Bible. And in the same way that you can misread it and take that away, somebody else in that time when that was happening could do the same thing. Oh, well, God did it for her. When's he going to do it for me? And the point is, signs are meant to show us who God is. They're meant to cause worship and glory to him. So he tells her, shut the door. Do this in private. This is not a show. It's not a magic trick. This is for you alone. The next thing we see is that she obeys the solution. Listen, what good is God's solution if you don't do it? Like, why do you ask God, or you come to church and you read your Bible and you go, well, what, how am I supposed to handle this? How am I supposed to handle this? And then as soon as God gives you the solution, because it doesn't make sense in your head, because an all-knowing God doesn't need to give you a solution that fits inside of your brain, and as soon as you get that solution, you go, ah, I'm not doing that. That's not going to work. Is the problem that the solution is irrational or impractical? That's the point. It wouldn't be faith if it made perfect sense. If it was just clearly the obvious right answer, it wouldn't take faith to live that way. Guess where you can find all of God's solutions to life? In the Bible. Here's the thing. Life is an open note test. An open book test, actually. How many of you, if you had an open book test, your teacher said, you can use the book, you can look up anything you want, would just be like, eh, I'd rather just recall things I've passively listened to while I was sitting in class and guess at the rest. But that's how we treat life. You literally have the book with all the answers, all the notes you need of how to live your life, and instead, you just come to church, you kind of passively take stuff in, and then you guess at the rest. If you will study this, all of God's solutions are in it. And then the last thing we see in verses 6 and 7 is don't limit God. This woman, listen, if you told me, go home, get your containers, get your oil container, start just pouring it into buckets, right? I'm not going to do it. You know why? Because I'm going to get home, and now my oil is, instead of being in the oil container that it goes in, it's going to be in this bucket, and I'm not going to have any more oil. This doesn't sound like a, like a plan that makes sense. The fact that she went and gathered up a lot of containers, she already had faith. She already believed this was going to work. She gathered up all of these containers, and she went and she didn't limit God's provision in her life. And then as she poured the containers, or as she poured her oil, the containers filled up one after another. And she had more than she needed. Listen, this story, there's a couple things going on here. One is this story is meant to mirror Elisha 
he's doing this with this widow. And if you go back into 1 Kings, you'll see Elijah doing this with another widow and a little jar of flour, right? And the point is, the author's comparing these stories to show you Elijah was the Savior. He was the type of Christ, right? But he didn't do it perfectly. He, he had flaws and he had mistakes. We still need a Savior. Okay, now let's look at Elisha. And we're going to see the same thing. Elisha is providing here. He is God's messenger. He's the one, uh, but it's not even by his power, right? He is the one that's producing this sign, and he is the type of redeemer that this woman needs in this situation, but he's not going to do it perfectly. And then we see, we see Jesus do this, right? Jesus, at one point, Peter says, how are we going to pay our taxes? And Jesus says, I want you to go fishing, and when you pull the fish out, there's going to be money, enough money for both of our taxes in the fish's mouth. Okay, let's pause for a second. We've grown up in church. We've heard these Bible stories a thousand times. None of you pay your taxes by money you found in fish's mouth while you were fishing, all right? That's not a thing. That's an irrational, doesn't make sense solution. But it took faith. That's the whole point. If it had been, you know, okay, well, you know what? We're going to have to get jobs. We're going to have to get jobs so we can file our W-2. That wouldn't be the faith walk. That would just be practical. That'd be what everybody's already doing, right? Jesus was showing us the faith walk. That's what Elisha is doing right here. And again, in every single one of these situations, whether it's pretty much in every time you see this, my favorite version or my favorite story is uh, Ruth when she goes to glean in the fields and she gets more than she needs. She has an abundance. That happens over and over again in the Bible. God is not just causing you to skate by, just kind of get what you need at a minimum. God is providing more than we need. Look in verse 8. Now a day came when Elisha went over to Shunem, where there was a prominent woman, and she urged him to eat food. And so it was as often as he passed by that he turned in there to eat food. And she said to her husband, Behold now, I am aware that this is a holy man of God passing by us repeatedly. Please, let's make a little walled upper room and let's set up a bed for him there and a table, a chair, and a lampstand. Then it shall be when he comes to us that he can turn in there. Now, one day he came there and turned into the upper room and rested. Then he said to his servant, Gehazi, call this Shunammite. And when, she, and when he called her, she stood before him. And he said to him, say now to her, behold, you have taken trouble for us and all this care. What can I do for you? Would you like me to speak uh, for you to the king or to the commander of the army? But she answered, I live among my own people. So he said, what then is to be done for her? And Gehazi answered, it is a fact that she has no son and her husband is old. He then said, call her. When he had called her, she stood in the doorway. Then he said, at this season next year, you are going to embrace his son. And she said, No, my Lord, you, man of God, do not lie to your servant. Now the woman conceived and gave birth to a son at the season the next year, as Elisha had told her. Okay, listen, God's character is to bless his children. God's character is to bless his children. Here's the thing. I've titled this subpoint, Have Assurance of Salvation. That's not quite an appropriate subtitle for this portion of the Bible, but I want you to hear me out on this. I'm going through 1 John on Sundays, and what we're talking about is the assurances of salvation. And one of the things that we see in the assurances of salvation is that you know that you are united to Christ when you are united to what he's united to. When you love the church and when you love God's people, you're united to Christ because those are the things he loves. Here's the thing. It is unnatural to love the church. It's unnatural to love church as it is, and it's un unnatural to love God's people, right? And what we saw in the Old Testament is that prophets were consistently rejected. They were, they were cast out. Some of them were killed. The prophets were constantly being rejected by society because they represented God in his holiness and people who are living in sin hate the light. So when you have a natural love for someone in the light, you are serving God. 
You are one of God's servants. I just want to read Matthew 10, 41 and 42. The one who receives a prophet in the name of a prophet shall receive a prophet's reward. And the one who receives a righteous person in the name of a righteous person shall receive a righteous person's reward. And whoever gives one of these little ones just a cup of cold water to drink in the name of a disciple, truly I say to you, he shall by no means lose his reward. What does James say pure and undefiled religion is? Visiting widows and orphans in their distress. Helping out the needy. It's loving on people, right? Again, loving God's people is not natural. And loving a prophet wasn't natural. And then notice, she didn't even know he was a prophet at first. She was just ministering to somebody traveling by her house. And then when she found out that he was a prophet of God, she wanted to do even more. She went above and beyond. She served him because she served his God. This is her assurance that we see that this woman is a true and genuine believer. And then the next thing is to be content in your need. Elijah asks what he can do for her. Now there's two things going on in this phrase. The first part of a king and a commander is this idea of security. And not just like, not just like protection from danger, but even security like more food or more provision, right? So there's a secure idea in that statement. But the other thing is to say the king or the commander is to say, I can pretty much get you anything. Like I can get you what you want, right? And, and then the thing is, she says, she says essentially, I have what I need. Her statement back in the ancient times, uh, living with your people was where you were provided for, okay? Families, and, and tribes, they would provide for their neighbors. There was all kinds of rules about hospitality that were more formal. And she, what she's saying by I live among my people is I'm safe and I have what I need. I have everything I need right here. Now here's the thing. We then find out she doesn't have a son and her husband is old. Listen, being a widow in the ancient, in the, in the Old Testament, that was the lowest form of poverty you could have. You were completely destitute. When her husband dies eventually, and she has no son to, to provide for her and protect for her in her old age, she is going to be at the lowest level of poverty. So how is it that she says, I don't need anything? I mean, don't you think she's prayed about this? She's clearly aware that she needs a son, and yet what she's showing us is that She's letting God determine what she needs. She may think that she has that need. It makes sense that she has that need. But the fact that she doesn't have a son is enough for her to see that she doesn't need a son. Listen, Jesus was the master of this. Jesus constantly asked people what they wanted to see what was in their hearts. And, and Jesus' goal when he was asking that question was to get to them to realize that what they actually needed was forgiveness of sins. They didn't need to be able to walk better or see over needing forgiveness. So Elisha asked this question, and then we, we see really her heart is revealed in this. And then the next thing we see in, uh, in verse 14, we see God's character. Listen, God loves his children so much, he saved them in eternity. Do you think it's confined to that? God loves us so much that someday when we die, he'll show us. That's it. It starts there. But everything prior to that, just out of love. That doesn't even make sense. The reality is if God loves us in heaven, he loves us now. Keep in mind, this is not the prosperity gospel. The prosperity gospel focuses on the gift. God's intent when he blesses you is not that you would have that blessing. His intent is that you would see his love and worship him. That's a very different focus. The point is not the gift itself. And here's the other thing. When God gives you a blessing, it's often what you actually need, not what you think you need, which is usually just what you want. This woman let God determine her need. And her reaction reveals her heart. She didn't grasp at it immediately. She has wanted this. Listen, she's wanted a son her entire life. That's what, 
That's what women in ancient times, they wanted children. That's what they, that's the only way that they uh, had legacy. That was the only way that they um, were provided for. They wanted children. That was their joy. This woman has wanted a child her entire life. But do you know what she's done? She's ensured that this is not an idol. She is determined to worship God with or without this desire. So when it's presented to her, she reacts the same way somebody who's done the hard work to say, I'm not going to make this an idol would react. And she says, you know what? If I get that, great, I'll worship God. But if I don't get that, I'm still going to worship God. This woman's heart is in the right place about this. She's going to worship God either way. So here's my question for you. Are you holding on to a desire that you won't worship God if you don't get? Here's the reality. And I'm talking about this because this is the room we're in. And this is the struggle that, frankly, I get to talk about with most of you most of the time. Are you going to worship God if he has singleness for you? Because the reality is this. It's not evil to want to be in a couple. It's not evil to want to get married and have companionship. The point is, if God has something different for you, I promise you it'll be more fulfilling. It will be the only version of what's fulfilling. And every other version of what you want, all the counterfeits in the world, they're poison and they're toxic. And God wants you to want his plan for your life, whatever he has for you. Listen, signs, signs in the Bible are always designed to put the glory on God. False prophets put the focus on the gift. God told me, you'll meet your husband this year. God told me, you'll be wealthy and influential. How about this one? God told me that you'll be cured of this illness. Listen, the reality is that person probably does not have the authority to make that statement to you. Why can Elisha make that statement right here? Listen, I have to clarify this because this is the kind of verse people take out of context. Elisha, in this moment, he is the representative from God on earth. He has the authority. Do you know where that authority is now? It's in the Bible. People don't have the authority to walk up to you and declare things into your life that contradict or at least don't match what you what God is showing you in Scripture. That's not the way it works. And on top of that, I every time I see that, right, there's 1% of the time over here where somebody who is walking with God speaks truth into someone's life and says, I think God is going to use you in this way. And it's always humble, and it always points them towards Christ's likeness, and it always points them towards God's glory, right? And then there's this other version that's completely unholy that is just a proclamation of your desires and your wants. And you know what I notice about that person? Their life doesn't scream Christ's likeness. Nothing about that person confirms in me or gives me a peace that that person is walking so close with God that they actually have a word for me. That they actually have something to tell me. Do you know that prophecy in the Bible, in the Old Testament, is rarely future telling? That is actually a minority of what prophets do. We've, we've like blown that part massively out of proportion. You know what prophets did? They were preachers. They spoke God's truth. They told people how to apply the Bible in their daily lives. And you know what? If you spend time in the Word and you say, God is this, and whenever this happens, God is the same. Guess what's going to happen when that happens? Exactly what you said. Looks like you're a genius. It's just because God is consistent. The prophets oftentimes were just saying, this is who God is. This is who God is in this situation and in all of our lives. And then when it came true, I, I'm honestly not convinced that sometimes they weren't as shocked as everybody else. Like, whoa, that just happened. Right? But they were just telling the truth. Here's my final note on this. If somebody walks up to you and they have a word for your life, and that person for you has the position and the authority to love on you in that way, 
at the very least, that cannot contradict Scripture. And it better be confirmed in Scripture. And by the way, when we confirm something in Scripture, that doesn't mean we just go find the verse that suits us. That means that in your quiet time, in your walk with God, as you are studying this word, he shows you the lesson he has for you. And honestly, if that prophecy causes you to sin, it's not from God. That's not the point. So somebody prophesies into your life and it causes you to pick up an idol, you've missed it. Look in verse 18. When the child was grown, the day came that he went out to his father to the reapers. And he said to his father, my head, my head. And his father said to his servant, carry him to his mother. When he had carried him and brought him into his mother, he sat on her lap until noon, and then he died. And she went up and laid him on the bed of the man of God and shut the door behind him and left. Then she called to her husband and said, Please send me one of the servants and one of the donkeys so that I may run to the man of God and return. But he said, Why are you going to him today? It is neither a new moon nor Sabbath. So she just said, It will be fine. Then she saddled the donkey and said to her servant, Drive the donkey and go on. Do not slow down the pace for me unless I tell you. So she went and came to the man of God at Mount Carmel. When the man of God saw her at a distance, he said to Gehazi, his servant, Behold, that person is the Shunammite. Please run now to meet her and say to her, Is it going well for you? Is it going well for your husband? Is it going well for your child? Then she answered, It is going well. But she came to the man of God at the hill and took hold of his feet. And Gehazi came up to push her away. But the man of God said, Leave her alone, for her soul is troubled within her, and the Lord has concealed it from me and has not informed me. Then she said, Did I ask for a son for my Lord? Did I not say, Do not give me false hope? All right. Here's, here's what we're seeing here. God is the answer. God is the answer every time, no matter what, in all situations. God is always the answer. The first thing we see this woman do, her son has just died. This is honestly instant victim response time, easily. And what does she do? She seeks after God. She goes and finds the man of God, the representative of God in her time. She acts in faith immediately. Her husband says, why are you going to see him? And, and she has an Abraham response. Like, keep in mind, this isn't the way, you know, when your, your girlfriend's mad and you say, are you okay? And she goes, I'm fine. This isn't that kind of I'm fine, okay? What's happening here is she's actually having a, a faith-based response. Abraham is walking to the Mount of Mor Moriah with Isaac. And Isaac says to him, Dad, where's the sacrifice? And he says, Son, the Lord will provide. What she is saying right here is, God is still in charge. I don't know how this is going to turn out. I'm going to find God because He is still the answer. He is still the answer even if I'm in the middle of crisis. She seeks Him with intensity. Honestly, how like she, she tells the servant, don't slow down the donkey for me. Let's go. How often do we lollygag around in our prayers and not really take seriously seeking God on something? And we tell everybody, oh, I'm praying about it. You know, I don't really know. And, and the thing is, we're not seeking God earnestly. Do you know what the Bible says about prayer? Ask continually. Seek constantly. Knock until the doors open. Bother the judge until he gives you justice. Approach him earnestly. Approach him with pleading and petition. Listen, prayer is not just lackadaisical. It's hard. It's intense. It's how you participate. God wants to see that you are involved. When you're not willing to pray like that, you're not. You're not involved. You're not participating. God answers prayer. He answers prayer all the time. But you got to do it. You got to pray. And then what is God's response in this situation? If Elisha is showing us who God is, Elisha's response right here is compassion. He hurts for her. He cares for her. Why do we constantly believe this lie that God doesn't care what we're going through? 
You know God hurts for you? He's sad for your sadness. He hurts for what you're dealing with. And you know what? Jesus came and lived a human life and experienced what you're going through. He knows firsthand what it's like to be human and deal with everything we've got going on in our lives. That's not foreign to him. He cares about it. And for some reason, we constantly think that that he just doesn't. That's why we don't pray. We feel like no one's listening. And then what happens in, uh, start in verse 29, we see that she stays with him. Then he said to Gehazi, get ready and take my staff in your hand and go. If you meet anyone, do not greet him. And if anyone greets you, do not reply to him and lay my staff on the boy's face. The mother of the boy said, as surely as the Lord lives and you yourself live, I will not leave you. So she got up and so he got up and followed her. Then Gehazi went on ahead of them and laid the staff on the boy's face, but there was no sound or response. So he returned to meet him and informed him, saying, The boy has not awakened. Okay. First of all, the staff on the face thing, this is misunderstood because the next thing is that uh, there's no response from the boy. There's two things happening here. The reason that the staff gets taken and put on the boy, it's a signal of hope. The man of God is coming. This is Jesus as well. We have hope that he's coming to heal us and to fix us and to save us. That is what that is signifying. It's hope. And then we see that there's no response. Do you know why that's important? This kid is not taking a nap. We now have a secondhand account. He is dead. D-E-D, dead. (laughs) The reality is, (laughs) what happens here is we see that the woman of God, she says, I will not leave you. One of my favorite moments in the Bible is when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are about to get thrown into the fiery furnace, and they say, we will not worship any god but ours, Our God has the power over life and death. And even if he doesn't save us, we will not worship a false God. That's what's happening here. This woman sought out God immediately. He was the answer. And then she knows there's nowhere else to be. There's no other solution. There's no other route. She can't make herself busy. How often do we go give this cursory prayer to God and then go, Okay, you handle it on that end. I'll go over here and I'll fix it this way. That's not it. She asked God to fix this problem and that's where she stays. He is her only hope. There is nothing else. And then what do we see in verse 32? She worships him. When Elisha entered the house, behold, the boy was dead, laid on, laid on his bed. So he entered and shut the door behind them both and he prayed to the Lord. Then he got up on the bed and lay on the child and put his mouth on his mouth, his eyes on his eyes, his hands on his hands, and he bent down on him. And and the flesh of the child became warm. Then he returned and walked in the house back and forth once and went up and bent down on him, and the boy sneezed seven times. And then the boy opened his eyes, and he called Gehazi and said, Call this Shunammite. So he called her, and when she came to him, he had, he said, Pick up your son. Then she came in, fell at his feet, bowed down to the ground, and she picked up her son and left. Okay. Elisha shuts the door. Once again, this is not a magic trick. This is not a big show for everybody to be a part of. He's not trying to uh, prove how powerful he is or gain some kind of fame. This is a sign that God performs to bring glory to him. Not the sign itself. Okay? And then and then what does he do first? He prays. Before he tries anything else, he prays. Now, this, this thing where he lays on the boy, this seems weird to us. Here's what's happening. Elisha is taking seriously the intercession on behalf of this, this young man, and he cares so much that he is stretching himself out to identify with this dead child. Does it sound like anything else? 
Someday our Savior would stretch himself out to identify with us in our state of death. And he would save us. This is again a precursor of what Jesus is for us. In Luke 8, there's a story we all know. I'm going to read it really fast. And as Jesus was returning, the people welcomed him, for they had all been waiting for him. And a man named Jairus, or Jairus came, and he was an official of the synagogue, and he fell at Jesus' feet and began urging him to come to his house, for he had an only daughter, about 12 years old, and she was dying. While, she was still speaking, while he was still speaking, someone came from the house of the synagogue official, saying, Your daughter has died. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. But when Jesus heard this, he responded to him, Do not be afraid any longer. Only believe, and she will be made well. When he came to the house, he did not allow anyone to enter with him except Peter, John, and James, and the girl's father and mother. Now they were all weeping and mourning for her, but he said, Stop weeping, and sh uh, for she has not died but is asleep. And they began laughing at him, knowing that she had died. He, however, took her by the hand and spoke forcefully, saying, Child, arise. And her spirit returned, and she got up immediately, and he ordered that something be given to her to eat. Her parents were amazed, but he instructed them to tell no one what had happened. Listen to me. God has power over life and death. Everything you face in your life is less serious than that. Everything. Life and death. That's the top problem. God has ultimate control and ultimate power over the single biggest problem that none of us can figure out how to overcome on our own. He can solve everything else. Everything else in your life is within God's realm of authority and control. And then we see the difference here is that Elijah asked God to fulfill this miracle. Jesus is God. And here's the thing. We live in the New Testament. We don't go to Elisha. We have Jesus. We have God himself with all authority. Again, miracles are designed to cause us to worship. But what did Elisha and the woman go through before they worshiped? A trial. They felt anxiety, depression. They held on to hope against the odds, against the reality of the situation. Listen, look at Jesus in the garden. You don't think he felt anxiety? He literally prays that God would make it different. He says, Lord, let this be another way. And then after that, he still comes back to saying, yet not my will but yours be done. Jesus set the example of our submission to his plan for our lives. But he felt all the same anxiety. He felt all of the same stress. Do you know why? Because that's why we worship so hard after the trial. Trials are designed to show you how great God is because when you go through a trial and God delivers, you can't help but worship. you got to tell everybody. It's the greatest thing that's happened to you in your whole life up to that point, and you got to go tell people. That's the whole point. It causes us to worship. Lean in. Seek God. Stay with Him. And worship Him. Look at verse 38. When Elisha returned to Gilgal, there was a famine in the land. As the sons of the prophets were sitting in front of him, he said to his servant, Put on the large pot and boil stew for the sons of the prophets. Then one went out into the field to gather mallow and found a wild vine and gathered from it, uh, um, sorry, gathered from it his lap full of wild gourds. And he came and sliced them into the pot of stew because they did not know what they were. So they poured it out for the men to eat. But as they were eating the stew, they cried out and said, You man of God, there is death in the pot. And they were unable to eat. Then he said, Bring flour. And he threw it into the pot. And he said, Pour it out for the people that they may eat. Then there was nothing harmful in the pot. Okay, 
As a starter, I highly recommend this is not how you criticize your mom's cooking. <laughs> Death in the pot. That will not go over well. All right? Listen, here's, here's the principle here. God made evil into good. God actually has the power to purify evil things and make them into good. The Bible tells us that God works all things to the good of his children. I'm, some of you have heard me say this. That verse does not say God works only good things to happen to his children. That verse says that when bad things happen, God is still working them to our good if we're his children. Where did we start? We started this entire thing with an assurance of salvation. Are you God's child or not? If you are, seek him, stay with him, worship him, and watch him take everything in your life and redeem it. He will purify everything. We often collapse at the first sign of crisis. Listen, you come to my house and you tell me that there's poison in my soup, we're not just going to throw a little flour in. We're dumping it out. Like we're not eating that soup. But the reality is God doesn't have to start over in that situation. He redeems it. James says, don't cut your trials short. They're designed to grow you, to cause that worship. When you cut them short, when you circumvent them to get out of them because they are miserable and they are miserable, you're cutting short the growth of God in your life. 2 Corinthians 4, 17 and 18, for our momentary light affliction is producing for us an absolutely incomparable eternal weight of glory. So we do not focus on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. This is the faith walk. Notice the way they de that Paul describes that. Momentary light affliction. James calls it a mist. Absolutely incomparable eternal weight of glory. When you cut short the one, you're cutting short the other. Jesus would be the ultimate purifier of unclean things. And then we see that God is selfless. Look in verse 42. Now a man came from Belshalisha and brought the man of God bread and of the first fruits, twenty loaves of barley and fresh grains in his sack. And Elisha said, Give them to the people that they may eat. Okay. Do you think God's holding out on you? I mean, honestly, when you don't get something, do you think that God is being stingy? God doesn't have a need. He's not up in heaven hoarding all the things you need because he doesn't have enough. That's not the way that, that it's designed to work. When God doesn't give you something that you think you need, it's because it's not good in his eyes. Listen, when something's not good in his eyes, you don't want that thing. It's poison. It's poison. I've been saying this a lot lately, but I highly encourage you to incorporate that phrase into your prayers. God, I want this if it's good in your eyes. And if it's not, please take it from me. Please protect me from it. Elisha gets brought this tithe offering. By the way, we started this with there's a famine in the land. So this guy offers a, a tithe offering to, to the man of God in the middle of there's not enough to go around. This guy had faith. He was walking by faith. I think sometimes we think that the church is like hoarding the money. Do you know why you tithe? It's how we pool our resources to do ministry and love on people. This guy understood that. He brings the first fruits, his tithe offering to the man of God. And what does the man of God do? He turns around and he ministers to other people. He demonstrates Christ's likeness and selflessness, and he pours out to the people that are around him. Do you trust God so much that you would give in a season of less? Listen, some of us have trouble giving when we have way more than enough. Now try giving when you're struggling yourself. The reality is, the Bible's very clear. 
that's when it counts. That's when it matters, when it hurts a little bit. That's when God comes through and delivers because you're walking in faith because you're saying, God, I trust you so much that even though it feels like I don't have enough, here's some back to acknowledge that everything I do have came from you in the first place. That's why we tithe. And then we see irrational solutions. Look at verse 43. But his attendant said, How am I to serve this to a hundred men? Nevertheless, he said, Give them to the people that they may eat. For this is what the Lord says. They shall eat and have some left over. More than enough, right? So he served it to them, and they ate and had some left over in accordance with the word of the Lord. What's this foreshadowing? God, who would someday come and feed thousands, feed thousands. He would multiply bread from his very hands as he broke it. And those people, those thousands would have more than enough. They would eat until they're full, and there would still be some left over. Again, God's not skating by. He's not up there with a, like a shortage going, uh, okay, well, you need five, so here's five. No, he is doling out his love and showing his character on his children. And again, when you're not getting something, it's because God is protecting you from that thing. And then what, did we see? what do we see? If you go to the Gospels and you look at the feeding uh, of the thousands, what, what, did, what happens in that situation? They miss God for the miracle. I've said it several times. The miracle is designed to produce worship of God. And in those moments, they wanted to make Jesus king not because they wanted to worship him. He was a free meal ticket. They missed God who was right in front of them for the miracle. They missed the eternal for their next dinner. We're doing that all the time. Listen, if your life has nothing in it that requires you to trust and have faith in God, active, right? Not just couch, I believe that this is going to happen kind of faith. I'm talking about you have to walk in faith that God's going to come through. If you don't have that in your life, I, I, I have to tell you, you should be worried. You're not living right. You're not living according to the Bible. There's a chance you're not one of God's children because you don't even have the basic concept of what it means to walk in faith. It's the first step and it's the last step. There's nothing else. You don't like graduate from faith. You don't like someday, well, you know, I had that faith thing and now like I'm, you know, I'm like super saved, right? So I don't, I don't need faith anymore. That's not how it works. You continue to live this life and have faith. Listen, I feel like I spend most of my time now begging people to believe that if they will live sold out to this, their whole life will change. I, I'm literally a testimony of this. My whole life is changed, and I haven't done anything special except go to the one place where all the answers were. I'm, I'm cheating. I'm looking at all the answers to life. <laughs> it's available to you too. Listen, Joshua 1.8 says, This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth. You shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to everything, everything that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will achieve success. Do you see the order that that works in? Listen, I'm not like rich and famous, but I found life in this book and I'm prosperous because God is giving me what I actually need day by day. He's not giving me all the things I think I want. I said, I, I want a lot of stuff that I don't have. But I'm content in that need. I'm content in that lack. Because I know that I have everything that's good in God's eyes for me to have. That is the truth of God's word. God is calling us to live by faith. That means doing a lot of stuff that doesn't make sense. Like tithing. Tithing doesn't make sense. It doesn't. It's a complete act of faith. Acting on the beliefs that you have when it's hopeless. When the challenge is against you. Praying Constantly. Again, not cursory prayers. Not, oh, Jesus, it would be nice if this worked out. No, I'm talking about going to God and doing battle 
on behalf of you and the people around you. That is a walk of faith. How about trusting in God to do the impossible? Hear me out on this. We somehow believe that God has got our entire eternity worked out and can't handle tomorrow. That doesn't even make sense. What's easier? Saving you from eternal hellfire because you are a sinner and you've been saved by grace? Or working out your bills? The reality is God's got this in the bag. In Job, he says that your biggest, your biggest, he didn't say it like this, I'm paraphrasing, but in Job it says your biggest problems in life are like a puppy dog and a goldfish to me. He says Leviathan and Behemoth, but the point is, they're small. They're too big for you, and they're tiny to me. They don't stop me from acting. Listen, we're called to walk an irrational walk. Faith is irrational. It doesn't make sense. And if it always makes sense, if your life is constantly filled with practical solutions and things that make sense, that's not the faith walk. That's just what everybody else is already doing. I want you guys to catch it. It is that this is the only thing that matters. If you can figure that out, your whole life will change. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will achieve success. Get in the Word, guys. Hey guys, this is Philip Jackson, pastor of Young Adults at Evergreen Baptist Church. I want to invite you to come to Reach. We meet every Tuesday night at 7 p.m. at Evergreen Church in South Tulsa, just east of Mingo on 111th Street. The mission of Reach Tulsa is to cultivate a young adult community that's defined by real transformation and a sincere pursuit of a godly life through training in biblical disciplines, personal development, and intentionally transitioning into independence as mature members of the body of Christ. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to like and subscribe to our content. We're available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Reach Young Adult Ministry is a part of Evergreen Baptist Church in Tulsa, Oklahoma. For more information and additional lessons, please visit our website, evergreenbc.org.